Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker. I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling, even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme. God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship He desires to have with you. Hi there. I'm so glad you've joined me for today's podcast. We're starting in John chapter 15 today, and this chapter, it's a tough one. Different interpretations over Jesus' words spoken in this passage have been a source of division for many Christians. My goal in this podcast has always been to teach the Bible in a clear and compelling way so that you are inspired to study it for yourself. My goal is not to provide in-depth arguments for or against certain theological standpoints. And let me just be clear here. The reason this passage divides Christians is because it's hard to interpret. If biblical scholars cannot resolve these issues after decades of study and debate, I certainly am not going to answer all your questions surrounding these verses in my podcast. I want to present the views to you today, explain why the words here can be interpreted differently, and then encourage you to engage with the Holy Spirit and with Scripture to draw your own conclusions. So remember, if you've been studying John with me, you know this chapter comes in the middle of an intimate conversation Jesus is having with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. He and his disciples have eaten a final meal together. It's just him and his 11 faithful followers. Judas has left the scene and won't return until he betrays Jesus in just a few hours. Jesus has been preparing the disciples for his death, although they don't fully understand how the next several hours are going to unfold. We read at the end of chapter 14 how Jesus explained the Holy Spirit and how he will come and comfort them. And in the last verse of 14, Jesus told his disciples to get up and leave with him. Now, we don't know if they went to a different room or started walking out to the garden or, like I'm prone to do, said they were leaving but then stood around and talked some more. These words may have been spoken as they headed outside or may have been spoken in that same room or even once they'd already arrived in the garden. But just for fun... Imagine Jesus and his disciples are walking through Jerusalem, headed to the Mount of Olives, and passing right by the temple. And if so, the visual he uses would have been striking. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But let's start with the first two verses of chapter 15. I'll be reading today from the English Standard Version. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I've never had the opportunity to visit a vineyard, but Jesus and his disciples were very familiar with the entire process of growing grapes and making wine. In fact, the image of a vine is used throughout the Old and New Testament as a picture of Israel. If indeed Jesus and his disciples were walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, They might have walked right past the temple gates 
where an image of the vine was engraved into them. I mean, can you just imagine hearing Jesus say, I am the true vine. As you look up at the huge bronze gates to the temple and see the vine, which symbolized their nation, looming large above your head, it would have undoubtedly caught their attention and piqued their curiosity about Jesus's intention with this imagery. Now, these are just the first two verses of this chapter, but I want to stop here and address a few things. First of all, Jesus identifies himself as the true vine. And this is the final of the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. Let's take a quick minute to review the seven I am statements. First was, I am the bread of life. Then, I am the light of the world. Next, I am the door or gate. Then we had, I am the good shepherd, followed by, I am the resurrection and the life. And then I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now finally, I am the true vine. Notice that all of these I am statements are objects or ideas his listeners would be very familiar with. In earlier podcasts, we talked about how bread was a staple of their diets, how sheep gates would have been a very strong image because shepherding was a common occupation, and now vines. Vineyards were all over first century Israel, so picturing a vine would have come easily. We already know that these disciples were steeped in Old Testament knowledge. They were fully embedded in first century Jewish culture as well, and they would have likely had verses like Psalm 80, 8 and 9 memorized, which say, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. This is a picture of the nation of Israel. God led them using Moses, then Joshua, out of Egypt and gave them the promised land. They took root there and filled the land. Isaiah also speaks of Israel as a vine. He says in chapter 5, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it up stones. He planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And this chapter of Isaiah goes on and talks further about the vineyard and makes parallels to Israel as the vine. The prophet Hosea also called Israel a vine. In chapter 10, Hosea says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as the vine, but on this particular evening, Jesus says he is the true vine. God, the Father, is in the role of the gardener, and depending on your translation, this might be vine dresser or even husbandman. All of these terms mean the one who takes care of cultivating the vines. As you probably know, vines have branches, and from those branches, grapes grow. So Jesus is going to build a metaphor here using the imagery of the vine, the vine dresser, the branches, and the fruit. And we've seen him use other metaphors, such as the sheep pen, where he likened himself to the gate, but then also the shepherd, 
He used the sheep to symbolize believers. And here, in this example, he says there are branches that can either bear fruit or not. In the vineyard, the fruit is, of course, grapes. In the metaphor, the fruit is in our life. The fruit of our lives is found in our words, our actions, our attitudes, and our behaviors. So what happens if that fruit is not evident? The words used in ESV are takes away. Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Some versions read cuts off or removes. And this is where we start to get into a bit of a theological difference in interpretation. And I do want to address that, but not until we get a little further into this passage. Notice that Jesus also says the branches that do produce fruit get pruned. Now, when I think of the word prune, used in the sense of gardening, I think of cutting off a piece of the stem or the branch. But in the Greek, the word here has another meaning. The word is kithari, and it means to clean by washing. So some translations use the English word prune, others use purge, but it could also be translated wash. And did you know that part of the process to care for vines is to wash the leaves and the branches of soot and dirt? That's the vision here for the fruitful branches. It's a cleansing. In Greek, there's actually a wordplay going on here. The word used to describe what happens to the branches that do not produce fruit, we translate remove, cut off, or take away, just like we discussed a minute ago. That word in Greek is aero, A-I-R-O. It can also mean lifts up. Now, Jesus uses another word, kathari, which means clean for the branches that do produce fruit. And it's kind of hard to explain this in English, but essentially both of these words have a similarity in the Greek with their root word. And it makes sense why Jesus would use this word for clean because of verse 3, which reads, Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Okay, so what is going on here? Jesus has declared himself to be the true vine, and he begins to build a metaphor. God the Father is the vine dresser. So the idea is that Jesus is going to provide life to branches, and those branches will provide fruit. God the Father will be checking to make sure the branches are fruitful. If he finds some that are not bearing fruit, we get this Greek action verb, aero. He will either remove, cut off, take away, or lift up. The word can mean any of those. If he finds branches that are fruitful, we get this other Greek action word related to aero, but pronounced kathario, which can mean purge, prune, or clean. Then Jesus tells the 11 disciples they are already clean and uses that same word from above, but in adjective form now. They are clean. Now, you can use words in English as both verb and adjective. I can say, please clean that, and clean is a verb. It's something you do. Or I can say, that looks so clean. And now, clean is an adjective because it's describing something. And that's exactly what's going on here. For fruitful branches, the vine dresser will clean them, but the disciples are described as already clean. And this word that's used here is very similar in the root to the word used for the non-fruitful branches, which are either cut off, removed, or 
lifted up. Okay, so now I've given you some Greek, I've given you some grammar in comparing verbs and adjectives, and a literary tool called a metaphor. I hope this doesn't feel too much like a bad experience in English class, but I do think that understanding these things is important to our overall grasp of this passage. Let's read one more verse, and then we'll pause to talk about some of the various interpretations of this. Verse 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus then gives them an application. Like the branches on a vine, remain attached to me so that you can continue to bear fruit. There are a few distinct ways now to look at this passage. Some believe that what Jesus is saying here is that believers who are unfruitful can be cut off and cast away. They argue that this passage is clearly talking about believers. Branches of the vine are part of the vine. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and creating a metaphor about their relationship to him. The whole purpose of this, as we will see, is that Jesus wants them to stay connected to him and to stay fruitful. A second way to look at this passage is to interpret that the fruitless branches are those who claim they are believers but aren't true believers. And some will say that this is God removing people who claim to have salvation, but in the end were never truly saved, and thus they are cut off. I want to come back to this and these different ways of interpreting this in just a few minutes, but I want us to read a little further and get more out of this metaphor and what Jesus is trying to teach before we do that. So keep in mind as we read that the big idea here is the relationship of Jesus and his disciples. That's what this metaphor is trying to illustrate. Now, let's pick back up in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So we see here that Jesus has repeated this illustration. He says again, he is the vine, and his audience, the eleven disciples, are the branches. He says it a second time, that abiding in him will result in producing fruit. And then we get another statement about the non-fruit-producing branches. This time, the imagery is that the branches are thrown away. They wither, and then those discarded, withered branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And biologically, this is exactly what happens in a vineyard. But what does Jesus mean in the metaphor here? Does he mean that believers can be cut off from him and burned up in the fires of hell? That is exactly the controversy that I've alluded to in the introduction to this podcast. Scholars and Christian leaders differ on how to interpret this passage. A few minutes ago, I mentioned two main ways to interpret this. The first is that true believers can lose their salvation if they are unfruitful. The second is that this refers to people who claim to be believers but aren't truly saved. And to be truthful, I'm only focusing on these two main interpretations here. 
I've read others who have a slightly different twist, but essentially the question in this passage is, what does the metaphor mean when branches that were attached to the vine are cut off, withered, and burned? I mean, what does that mean? What does it really represent? So on one side of the argument, additional scriptures are used to confirm that believers do not lose their salvation. There are verses in John and in other New Testament books that support this claim. Think back to Jesus' illustration of being the good shepherd and him stating that the sheep cannot be snatched out of his hand. There are also verses like Ephesians 1.13 that says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. These and other verses lead some to believe that the cutting off of the branches cannot be believers who lose their salvation, and it must mean something else. And in studying this, I read an interesting explanation of the grammar of this verse. The verse reads, If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a branch. Notice the attention to the singular. But then it says, They are gathered up and thrown into the fire, which is a switch to the plural. The interpretation here is that the plural represents the works of this person which are burned up. This reasoning is in line with 1 Corinthians 3.15, which reads, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, the other side of this argument is that only true believers can be in Christ. And the verse clearly says, If anyone does not remain in me, which would indicate they are believers, but choose not to remain in Christ or remain metaphorically attached to the vine. This group believes that true believers can lose their salvation and be cut off from eternal life. This happens when a true believer turns away from God and rejects Jesus' teaching after experiencing salvation. Now, as I said, the purpose of this podcast is not to establish my personal theology and provide an argumentative case as to why you should believe what I believe on issues that clearly have caused division among scholars. I hope you want to dig into this for yourself, and you want to seek God's wisdom in understanding this. I want to step back for a minute and ask a broader question. What is Jesus' main point in these verses? Did you notice a specific word he used multiple times in these first few verses? In the ESV, the word is abide. In other versions, it's translated remain. This word is used 11 times in John 15. The point Jesus is making is to stay connected to him, walk with him, nurture our relationship with him, stay in his presence. For a podcast focused on people wanting to understand the Bible and how it relates to their ordinary life, let me say that Jesus wants us to live in close connection with him. That's the point. As a result, we will produce fruit, and the whole business of withering, being cut off, being burned, can all be avoided. Twice in the first few verses, Jesus says to abide in him. And here's why. In verse 7 and 8, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. 
We are to abide in Christ, which will produce fruit because it glorifies the Father. Remember, friends, this life isn't really about us. It's about God. All things on heaven and earth are created for his glory. So any fruit we are able to produce as a result of our life in Christ is for the Father's glory. And think about a vineyard. If a vineyard produces an abundance of fruit, who gets the credit? Vine dresser, right? The one who tended to the plants. In this metaphor, that's God the Father's role. Also in this verse, we see another reference to Jesus saying, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He had said this earlier in chapter 14, verse 14, where he said, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In that podcast, we talked about how if we ask in Jesus' name, we are asking as his representative, and we will be asking for the things his heart desires. In the same way, if we are a branch of him, and he is providing the sustenance to our existence, then our requests will be in line with his desires. And Jesus goes on and says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Notice the repetition of the word abide again. The vine metaphor is over, and Jesus continues to reinforce the idea of abiding in him. Here, he says to abide in his love, and he compares this to how he has abided in the Father's love. In doing so, he knows the disciples will keep his commands just like he has kept his Father's. This is a comparison he wants them to see. Love and obey Jesus, just like Jesus loves and obeys the Father. That is what abiding looks like. And again, he gives an application, a reason for this. He tells them that he is sharing this with them so they will have his joy in them. And that joy would be full, or that word might be translated in your version, complete. Now let's step back and remind ourselves of the context. Jesus is giving his farewell address. He has predicted that he's going to leave the disciples, and they have already proven they don't fully understand this. He's encouraged them that they will have peace and that he will send another to comfort and advocate for them. Now he gives a metaphorical picture of their relationship to him as branches connected to a vine, and he says that obedience is a sign of their love, and this will produce full and complete joy. My goodness, their heads must be spinning, and he's not even quite done yet. We have another two and a half chapters of this discourse, but don't worry, I'm not planning to cover all of that today. Instead, let's just pause here and consider these words for ourselves. Let's start with this question. What gives you joy? Is it obedience? Jesus says, if we remain in him, we will produce fruit. That fruit is evidence that we are his disciples. This glorifies God and these things will bring us joy. My friend, abiding in Christ produces joy no matter what you are facing in life. He is the wellspring of our joy. As the vine, he will nourish his branches with joy.
So now let's ask this question. Are we abiding in him? Do we envision ourselves as a branch connected to the vine, which provides us our sustenance? If you are a believer, you are in Christ, and you can picture your relationship to him as a branch connected to the vine. You can rely on him for your nourishment. You can rely on him to hold you up. But are we? Or do we look to others to fill us? Do we look to social media or TV or movies or our career to nourish our spirits? It can be so challenging to silence this world's noise and connect with Jesus for our sustenance. But this is what he encourages his disciples to do. Abide. Remain. In doing so, the fruit of our lives will be abundant. So finally, what kind of fruit are you producing? Can someone look at your life and identify that you are connected to Christ the vine because of the fruit that's evident in your branches? This question for me is the one I want to keep in the forefront of my mind. I want my life to produce fruit so that the Father is glorified by the evidence that I am his disciple, that I am connected to Jesus the vine. There is no other reward in this life that compares with producing fruit for his kingdom. I can earn a promotion at work, or my kids can be given a tremendous accolade, or I can be asked to take a position of leadership in ministry. But none of that matters if my life is not producing fruit that identifies me as being connected to Jesus Christ. No matter where you fall in your theological understanding of Jesus as a vine, and believers as the branches, abiding in him is the ultimate goal. He graciously provided this picture to his disciples and to us because he loves us and wants us to connect to him. Let's not lose the awe of this. Jesus Christ, God himself, wants you and me to remain abiding in him and connected to him. He will provide our sustenance and our ability to produce fruit. The Father will tend to us, cleaning and pruning, so that we can abundantly point to his glory. My friend, this image gives me so much joy and hope. And I certainly hope it does the same for you. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforteordinarylife.com.